0: Hello again, I'm Richard Figgy, and this is for Reading Out Loud, so good to have you with me. The Yuletide Revels are almost here, and I'd like to share a seasonal tune kindly recorded for this program by banjo artist Scott Loveday. The growing cold of winter is upon us, and I've had a request for a seasonal story by O. Henry to suit the occasion. This one goes out with thanks to Bob and Krista. The Cop and the Anthem by O. Henry On his bench in Madison Square, Soapy moved uneasily. When wild geese honk high of nights, and when women without sealskin coats grow kind to their husbands, AND WHEN SOAPY MOVES UNEASILY ON HIS BENCH IN THE PARK, YOU MAY KNOW THAT WINTER IS NEAR AT HAND. A dead leaf fell in Soapy's lap. That was Jack Frost's card. Jack is kind to the regular denizens of Madison Square and gives fair warning of his annual call. At the corners of four streets he hands his pasteboard to the North Wind, footman of the Mansion of All Outdoors, so that the inhabitants thereof may make ready. Soapy's mind became cognizant of the fact that the time had come for him to resolve himself into a singular committee of ways and means to provide against the coming rigor, and therefore he moved uneasily on his bench. The hibernatorial ambitions of Soapy were not of the highest. In them there were no considerations of Mediterranean cruises, of soporific southern skies drifting in the Vesuvian Bay. Three months on the island was what his soul craved. Three months of assured board and bed and congenial company, safe from boreas and bluecoats, seemed to Soapy the essence of things desirable. For years the hospitable Blackwells had been his winter quarters, just as his more fortunate fellow New Yorkers had bought their tickets to Palm Beach and the Riviera each winter— So Soapy had made his humble arrangements for his annual hajira to the island, and now the time was come. On the previous night three Sabbath newspapers, distributed beneath his coat, about his ankles and over his lap, had failed to repulse the cold as he slept on his bench near the spurting fountain in the ancient square. So the island loomed big and timely in Soapy's mind. He scorned the provisions made in the name of charity for the city's dependents. In Soapy's opinion, the law was more benign than philanthropy. There was an endless round of institutions, municipal and illimasonary, on which he might set out and receive lodging and food accordant with the simple life. But to wand of Soapy's proud spirit, the gifts of charity are encumbered, if not in coin— you must pay in humiliation of spirit for every benefit received at the hands of philanthropy. As Caesar had his Brutus, every bed of charity must have its toll of a bath, every loaf of bread its compensation of a private and personal inquisition. Wherefore it is better to be a guest of the law, which, though conducted by rules, does not meddle unduly with a gentleman's private affairs. Soapy, having decided to go to the island, at once set about accomplishing his desire. There were many easy ways of doing this. The pleasantest was to dine luxuriously at some expensive restaurant, and then, after declaring insolvency, be handed over quietly and without uproar to a policeman. An accommodating magistrate would do the rest. Soapy left his bench and strolled out of the square and across the level sea of asphalt where Broadway and Fifth Avenue flow together. Up Broadway he turned, and halted at a glittering café, where are gathered together nightly the choicest products of the grape, the silkworm, and the protoplasm. Soapy had confidence in himself from the lowest button of his vest upward. He was shaven, and his coat was decent, and his neat black, ready tied four in hand had been presented to him by a lady missionary on Thanksgiving Day. If he could reach a table in the restaurant unsuspected, success would be his. The portion of him that would show above the table would raise no doubt in the waiter's mind. A roasted mallard duck, thought Soapy, would be about the thing, with a bottle of Chablis, and then camembert, a demi and a cigar. One dollar for the cigar would be enough. The total would not be so high as to call forth any supreme manifestation of revenge from the cafe management, and yet the meat would leave him filled and happy for the journey to his winter refuge. But as Soapy set foot inside the restaurant door, the head waiter's eyes fell upon his frayed trousers and decadent shoes. Strong and ready hands turned him about and conveyed him in silence and haste to the sidewalk, and averted the ignoble fate of the menaced Mallard. Soapy turned off Broadway. It seemed that his route to the coveted island was not to be an Epicurean one. Some other way of entering limbo must be thought of. At a corner of Sixth Avenue electric lights and cunningly displayed wares behind plate glass made a shop-window conspicuous, Soapy took a cobblestone and dashed it through the glass. People came running around the corner, a policeman in the lead. Soapy stood still, with his hands in his pockets, and smiled at the sight of brass buttons. "'Where's the man that done that?' inquired the officer excitedly. "'Don't you figure that I might have had something to do with it?' said Soapy, not without sarcasm, but friendly, as one greets good fortune." The policeman's mind refused to accept Soapy even as a clue. Men who smash windows do not remain to parley with the law's minions. They take to their heels. The policeman saw a man halfway down the block running to catch a car. With drawn club, he joined in the pursuit. Soapy, with disgust in his heart, loafed along, twice unsuccessful. On the opposite side of the street was a restaurant of no great pretensions. It catered to large appetites and modest purses. Its crockery and atmosphere were thick, its soup and napery thin. Into this place Soapy took his accusive shoes and tell-tale trousers without challenge. At a table he sat and consumed beefsteak, flapjacks, doughnut, and pie. And then to the waiter he betrayed the fact that the minutest coin and himself were strangers.' "'Now get busy, and call a cop,' said Soapy, "'and don't keep a gentleman waiting.' "'No cup for yous,' said the waiter, with a voice like butter-cakes and an eye like the cherry in a Manhattan cocktail. "'Hey, con!' Neatly upon his left ear on the callous pavement two waiters pitched Soapy. He arose joint by joint as a carpenter's rule opens and beat the dust from his clothes. Arrest seemed but a rosy dream. The island seemed very far away. A policeman who stood before a drugstore two doors away laughed and walked down the street. Five blocks Soapy traveled before his courage permitted him to woo capture again. This time the opportunity presented what he facetiously termed to himself a cinch. A young woman of a modest and pleasing guise was standing before a show-window, gazing with sprightly interest at its display of shaving-mugs and inkstands. and two yards from the window a large policeman of severe demeanour leaned against a water-plug. It was Soapy's design to assume the role of the despicable and execrated masher. The refined and elegant appearance of his victim, and the contiguity of the conscientious cop, encouraged him to believe that he would soon feel the pleasant official clutch upon his arm that would ensure his winter quarters on the right little, tight little aisle. Soapy straightened the lady missionary's ready-made tie, dragged his shrinking cuffs into the open, set his hat at a killing cant, and sidled towards the young woman. He made eyes at her, was taken with sudden coughs and hems, smiled, smirked, and went brazenly through the impudent and contemptible litany of the masher. With half an eye, Soapy saw that the policeman was watching him fixedly. The young woman moved away a few steps, and again bestowed her absorbed attention upon the shaving-mugs. Soapy followed, boldly stepping to her side, raised his hat, and said, "'Ah, there, Bedelia, don't you want to come and play in my yard?' The policeman was still looking. The persecuted young woman had but to beckon a finger, and Soapy would be practically en route for his insular haven. Already he imagined he could feel the cozy warmth of the station-house. The young woman faced him, and stretching out a hand, caught Soapy's coat-sleeve. "'Sure, Mike,' she said joyfully. "'If you'll blow me to a pail of suds, I'd have spoke to you sooner, but the cop was watching.' With the young woman playing the clinging ivy to his oak, Soapy walked past the policeman, overcome with gloom. He seemed doomed to liberty. At the next corner he shook off his companion and ran. He halted in the district where by night are found the lighted streets, hearts, vows, and librettos. Women in furs and men in greatcoats moved gaily in the wintry air, A sudden fear seized Soapy that some dreadful enchantment had rendered him immune to arrest. The thought brought a little panic upon it, and when he came upon another policeman lounging grandly in front of a transplendent theater, he caught at the immediate straw of disorderly conduct. On the sidewalk Soapy began to yell drunken gibberish at the top of his harsh voice. He danced, howled, raved, and otherwise disturbed the welkin. The policeman twirled his club, turned his back to Soapy, and remarked to a citizen, "'Tis one of them Yale lads celebrating the goose egg they give to the Hartford College. Noisy, but no harm. We've instructions to lay them be." Disconsolate, Soapy ceased his unavailing racket. Would never a policeman lay hands on him. In his fancy the island seemed an unattainable Arcadia he buttoned his thin coat against the chilling wind. In a cigar store he saw a well-dressed man lighting a cigar at a swinging light, his silk umbrella he had set by the door on entering. Soapy stepped inside, secured the umbrella, and sauntered off with it slowly. The man at the cigar light followed hastily. "'My umbrella!' he said sternly. "'Oh, is it?' sneered Soapy adding insult to petty larceny. "'Well, why don't you call a policeman?' "'I took it. Your umbrella. Why don't you call a cop? There stands one on the corner.' The umbrella owner slowed his steps. Soapy did likewise, with a presentiment that luck would again run against him. The policeman looked at the two curiously. "Uh, "'Of course,' said the Umbrella Man. "'That is—well, you know how these mistakes occur. I—if it's your Umbrella, I hope you'll excuse me. I picked it up this morning in a restaurant. If you recognize it as yours, why, I—I I, I hope you'll—' "'Of course it's mine,' said Soapy viciously. The ex-Umbrella Man retreated. The policeman hurried to assist a tall blonde in an opera cloak across the street in front of a streetcar that was approaching two blocks away.' Soapy walked eastward through a street damaged by improvements. He hurled the umbrella wrathfully into an excavation. He muttered against the men who wear helmets and carry clubs. Because he wanted to fall into their clutches, they seemed to regard him as a king who could do no wrong. At length Soapy reached one of the avenues to the east where the glitter and turmoil was but faint. He set his face down this toward Madison Square—' for the homing instinct survives even when the home is a park bench. But on an unusually quiet corner Soapy came to a standstill. Here was an old church, quaint and rambling and gabled. Through one violet-stained window a soft light glowed, where, no doubt, the organist loitered over the keys, making sure of his mastery of the coming Sabbath anthem for there drifted out to Soapy's ears sweet music that caught and held him transfixed against the convolutions of the iron fence. The moon was above, lustrous and serene. Vehicles and pedestrians were few. Sparrows twittered sleepily in the eaves. For a little while the scene might have been a country churchyard, and the anthem that the organist played cemented Soapy to the iron fence, for he had known it well in the days when his life contained such things as mothers, and roses, and ambitions, and friends, and immaculate thoughts, and collars. The conjunction of Soapy's receptive state of mind and the influences about the old church wrought a sudden and wonderful change in his soul. He viewed with swift horror the pit into which he had tumbled, the degraded days, Unworthy desires, dead hopes, wrecked faculties, and base motives that made up his existence. And also in a moment his heart responded thrillingly to this novel mood. An instantaneous and strong impulse moved him to battle with his desperate fate. He would pull himself out of the mire. He would make a man of himself again. He would conquer the evil that had taken possession of him. There was time he was comparatively young yet. He would resurrect his old eager ambitions and pursue them without faltering. Those solemn but sweet organ notes had set up a revolution in him. Tomorrow he would go into the roaring downtown district and find work. A fur importer had once offered him a place as driver. He would find him tomorrow and ask for the position. He would be somebody in the world. He would— SOAPY FELT A HAND LAID ON HIS ARM. HE LOOKED QUICKLY AROUND INTO THE BROAD FACE OF A POLICEMAN. "'WHAT ARE YOU DOING HERE?' ASKED THE OFFICER. Nothing, SAID SOAPY. "'THEN COME ALONG,' SAID THE POLICEMAN. Three MONTHS ON THE ISLAND,' SAID THE MAGISTRATE IN THE POLICE COURT THE NEXT MORNING. THAT WAS THE COP AND THE ANTHEM BY O'HENRY." I recently discovered a story by a very different writer, considered by some to be the greatest of short-story writers, the Russian author Anton Chekhov. Was ever the urgent human need for a patient listener so beautifully evoked as in this story from 1886? This one goes out with thanks to Liz. Misery by Anton Chekhov To Whom Shall I Tell My Grief? THE TWILIGHT OF EVENING Big flakes of wet snow are whirling lazily about the street lamps which have just been lighted, and lying in a thin, soft layer on roofs, horses' backs, shoulders, caps. Iona Potopov, the sledge-driver, is all white like a ghost. He sits on the box without stirring, bent as double as the living body can be bent. If a regular snowdrift fell on him, it seems as though even then he would not think it necessary to shake it off. His little mare is white and motionless too. Her stillness, the angularity of her lines, and the stick like straightness of her legs make her look like a halfpenny gingerbread horse. She is probably lost in thought. Any one who has been torn away from the plough, from the familiar grey landscapes, And cast into this slough, full of monstrous lights, of unceasing uproar and hurrying people, is bound to think. It is a long time since Iona and his nag have budged. They came out of the yard before dinner time, and not a single fare yet. But now the shades of evening are falling on the town, the pale light of the street lamps changes to a vivid colour, and the bustle of the street grows noisier. "'Sledge to Viborskaya, Iona hears. "'Sledge!' Iona starts, and through his snow-plastered eyelashes sees an officer in a military overcoat with a hood over his head. "'To Viborskaya, repeats the officer. "'Are you asleep?' "'To Viborskaya. In token of assent Iona gives a tug at the reins which sends cakes of snow flying from the horse's back and shoulders." The officer gets into the sledge. The sledge-driver clicks to the horse, cranes his neck like a swan, rises in his seat, and more from habit than necessity brandishes his whip. The mare cranes her neck, too, crooks her stick-like legs, and hesitatingly sets off. "'Where are you shoving, you devil?' Iona immediately hears shouts from the dark mass shifting to and fro before him. "'Where the devil are you going? Keep to the right!' "'You don't know how to drive. Keep to the right,' says the officer angrily. A coachman driving a carriage swears at him. A pedestrian crossing the road and brushing the horse's nose with his shoulder looks at him angrily and shakes the snow off his sleeve. Iona fidgets on the box as though he were sitting on thorns, jerks his elbows, and turns his eyes about like one possessed as though he did not know where he was or why he was there.' What rascals they all are, says the officer jocosely. They are simply doing their best to run up against you or fall under the horse's feet. They must be doing it on purpose. Iona looks at his fare and moves his lips. Apparently he means to say something, but nothing comes but a sniff. What? inquires the officer. Iona gives a wry smile, and straining his throat brings out huskily, My son— my son died this week, sir.' Hm. what did he die of?' Iona turns his whole body round to his fare and says, "'Who can tell? It must have been from fever. He lay three days in the hospital, and then he died. God's will.' "'Turn round, you devil,' comes out of the darkness. "'Have you gone crack, you old dog? Look where you're going.' "'Drive on, drive on,' says the officer. "'We shan't get there till tomorrow, going on like this.' "'Hurry up!' The sledge-driver cranes his neck again, rises in his seat, and with heavy grace swings the whip. Several times he looks round at the officer, but the latter keeps his eyes shut and is apparently disinclined to listen. Putting his fare down at Viborkskaya, Iona stops by a restaurant and again sits huddled up on the box. Again the wet snow paints him and his horse white. One hour passes, and then another. Three young men, two tall and thin, one short and hunchbacked, come up railing at each other and loudly stamping on the pavement with their galoshes. "'Cabby! To the police bridge!' the hunchback cries in a cracked voice. "'The three of us! Twenty kopecks!' Iona tugs at the reins and clicks to his horse. Twenty kopecks is not a fair price, but he has no thoughts for that.' Whether it is a rouble or whether it is five kopecks does not matter to him, so long as he has a fare. The three young men, shoving each other and using bad language, go up to the sledge, and all three try to sit down at once. The question remains to be settled which are to sit down and which one is to stand. After a long altercation, ill-temper, and abuse, they come to the conclusion that the hunchback must stand because he is the shortest. "'Well, drive on,' says the hunchback in his cracked voice, settling himself and breathing down Iona's neck. "'Cut along. What a cap you've got, my friend. You wouldn't find a worse one in all Petersburg.' (laughs) "'He-he, (laughs) he-he,' laughs Iona. "'It is nothing to boast of.' "'Well, then, nothing to boast of. Drive on. Are you going to drive like this all the way, eh? Shall I give you one in the neck?' "'My head aches,' says one of the tall ones.' At the Dukmasovs yesterday, Vaska and I drank four bottles of brandy between us. "'I can't make out why you talk such stuff,' says the other tall one angrily. "'You lie like a brute. Strike me dead, it's the truth. It's about as true as that a louse coughs. He <laughs> he, grins Iona. "'Merry gentlemen!' the devil take you,' cries the hunchback indignantly. "'Will you get on, you old plague, or won't you? Is that the way to drive? Give her one with a whip.' hang it all, give it her well!' Iona feels behind his back the jolting person and quivering voice of the hunchback. He hears abuse addressed to him. He sees people, and the feeling of loneliness begins little by little to be less heavy on his heart. The hunchback swears at him till he chokes over some elaborately whimsical string of epithets and is overpowered by his cough. His tall companions begin talking of a certain Nadyezhda Petrovna, "'Yona looks round at them. "'Waiting till there is a brief pause, "'he looks around once more and says, "'This week, uh, my uh, son died.' "'We shall all die,' says the hunchback with a sigh, "'wiping his lips after coughing. "'Come, drive on, drive on. "'My friends, I simply cannot stand crawling like this. "'When will he get us there?' "'Well, you give him a little encouragement, "'one in the neck.' "'You hear, you old plague? I'll make you smart. If one stands on ceremony with fellows like you, one may as well walk. Do you hear, you old dragon? Or don't you care a hang what we say?' And Iona hears, rather than feels, a slap on the back of his neck. He <laughs> he laughs. "'Merry gentlemen, God give you health.' "'Cabin, are you married?' asks one of the tall ones. I he <laughs> Merry gentlemen.' The only wife for me now is the damp earth, (laughs) the grave, that is. Here my son's dead, and I am alive. It's a strange thing. Death has come in at the wrong door. Instead of coming for me, it went for my son. And Iona turns round to tell them how his son died, but at that point the hunchback gives a faint sigh and announces that, thank God, they have arrived at last.' After taking his twenty kopecks, Iona gazes for a long while after the revelers, who disappear into a dark entry. Again he is alone, and again there is silence for him. The misery, which has been for a brief space eased, comes back again and tears his heart more cruelly than ever. With a look of anxiety and suffering, Iona's eyes stray restlessly among the crowds moving to and fro on both sides of the street. Can he not find among those thousands someone who will listen to him? But the crowds flit by heedless of him and his misery. His misery is immense beyond all bounds. If Iona's heart were to burst and his misery to flow out, it would flood the whole world, it seems." but yet it is not seen. It has found a hiding place in such an insignificant shell that one would not have found it with a candle by daylight. Iona sees a house-porter with a parcel and makes up his mind to address him. "'What time will it be, friend?' he asks. "'Going on for ten. Why have you stopped here? Drive on!' Iona drives a few paces away, bends himself double, and gives himself up to his misery. He feels it is no good to appeal to people, but before five minutes have passed he draws himself up, shakes his head as though he feels a sharp pain, and tugs at the reins. He can bear it no longer. Back to the yard, he thinks, to the yard. And his little mare, as though she knew his thoughts, falls to trotting. An hour and a half later Iona is sitting by a big dirty stove. On the stove on the floor and on the benches are people snoring. The air is full of smells and stuffiness. Iona looks at the sleeping figures, scratches himself, and regrets that he has come home so early. "'I have not earned enough to pay for the oats even,' he thinks. "'That's why I am so miserable. A man who knows how to do his work—' who has had enough to eat, and whose horse has had enough to eat, is always at ease. In one of the corners a young cabman gets up, clears his throat sleepily, and makes for the water-bucket. "'Want a drink?' Iona asks him. Seems so. May it do you good. But my son is dead, mate, do you hear? This week in the hospital. It's a queer business.' Iona looks to see the effect produced by his words but he sees nothing. The young man has covered his head over and is already asleep. The old man sighs and scratches himself. Just as the young man had been thirsty for water, he thirsts for speech. His son will soon have been dead a week, and he has not really talked to anybody yet. He wants to talk of it properly, with deliberation. He wants to tell how his son was taken ill how he suffered, what he said before he died, how he died. He wants to describe the funeral and how he went to the hospital to get his son's clothes. He still has his daughter Anisia in the country, and he wants to talk about her, too. Yes, he has plenty to talk about now. His listener ought to sigh and exclaim and lament. It would be even better to talk to women, though they are silly creatures— they blubber at the first word. "'Let's go out and have a look at the mare,' Iona thinks. "'There is always time for sleep. You'll have sleep enough, no fear.' He puts on his coat and goes into the stables where his mare is standing. He thinks about oats, about hay, about the weather. He cannot think about his son when he is alone. To talk about him with someone is possible.' But to think of him and picture him is insufferable anguish. Are you munching? Iona asks his mare, seeing her shining eyes. There, munch away, munch away. Since we have not earned enough for oats, we will eat hay. Yes. I've grown too old to drive. My son ought to be driving, not I. He was a real cabman. He ought to have lived. Iona is silent for a while, and then he goes on, "'That's how it is, old girl. Kuzma Ionich is gone. He said good to me. He went and died for no reason. Now suppose you had a little colt, and you were own mother to that little colt, and all at once that same little colt went and died. You'd be sorry, wouldn't you?' The little mare munches, listens, and breathes on her master's hands. Iona is carried away, and tells her all about it. You've been listening to The Cop and the Anthem by O. Henry, and Misery by Anton Chekhov. I find myself so touched by the ending of Chekhov's story, with a hoarse breathing on her master's hands. What a sweet irony in the conclusion— only the horse in the end gave Iona what he wanted and needed so urgently—quiet, patience, listening without interrupting as he poured out his grief. I'm Richard Figge, and this has been For Reading Out Loud. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy. Please stay safe. All the best. Music